Luke chapter 2 this morning. And I want to preach to you for a few moments out of the first few verses of this chapter. It's not lost on any of us what season this is. And uh, if you have been around any amount of time, you know me. You know that I don't necessarily preach on a, on a holiday sermon unless the Lord allows me to and, and leads me to. But I believe this passage would be the will of God for us this morning. And so we want to honor the Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Luke chapter 2 this morning, and I'd like to read the first 11 verses. The Word of God says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Let's read verse 10 once more, and then we'll pray. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Father in heaven, we thank You for this time that You've allowed us to gather here this morning. Lord, help us to not take it lightly, but Lord, to approach the preaching of Your Word, Father, with the reverence and with the receptiveness that would bring You glory and that would draw us closer to You. Father, I do not know the hearts of each and every person that's here. Lord, I know You've not brought anyone here by accident this morning, but by divine appointment we find ourselves gathered here So, Lord, I just believe, I can't help but believe this morning that you've got a truth and a message for the hearts of those that are here. Lord, my heart included, I pray that you'd speak to me this morning. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone without Christ, I pray that you'd show them their great need, that need of Calvary before it's everlasting too late. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in a phrase that's used in verse number 10. This is probably one of the most familiar portions of all Scriptures. And uh, especially this time of the year, you'll see it on Christmas cards. You'll see it uh, upon door hangers. You'll see it uh, upon uh, posters. And you'll see it upon all sorts of decorations. Verse 10 says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. You know, the thing that grabbed my attention as I read that, as I've done hundreds of times, is the phrase that the angel uses when he says that he came to bring good tidings. You know, when we think of that term good tidings, there is a truth associated with it that I don't know that we readily identify. Uh, But I would remind you this morning that when we talk about good news, when we talk about good tidings, and especially in the context of the birth, ministry, life, and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't help but think of this idea, the truth of the gospel. 
In fact, when you look at that word, that's the very same word that's used all through the Word of God for the gospel, the word evangelizo. And so when that angel appears in that field and begins to speak to these shepherds, we might could say this without doing any damage to Scripture, that as he stood there, he said, I have come to you this evening with a gospel. I have come to you to bring you some good news this evening, some good news that's not just for you, but is for the whole world. Now, I want to preach to you for a few moments on the gospel of Christmas this morning. What exactly was it that made these good tidings good tidings? What exactly can we learn from this passage of Scripture that might give us comfort and strength and help and might point the sinner to Calvary? Well, you know, as you read this, and no doubt many of you will gather with family and read this story, and uh, if you've got children or grandchildren, you might get them up on your knee and read this story to them. It's easy sometimes to diminish the grandiose truths that are contained here. We preached a little while on Friday morning and paralleled this passage with John chapter number 1. And it's often thought that the the Christmas story is not in the book of John. It is if you just look the right way. But when you look at these truths in the book of John, the, the magnitude of them is not lost. But as we read it here in Luke, and it is a historical narrative, we understand that. As Luke relayed these uh, truths to us, I think oftentimes it gets lost on us what big things are being said here. Consider for a moment that this uh, chapter opens with the decree of a world emperor. I mean, uh, when it opens, it begins with the name of the most powerful man, earthly speaking, on the entire planet at that time, and that was Caesar Augustus. But isn't it just like God to point to the man that may seem the most important in the world's eyes and then immediately turn the camera lens away from him and begin to hone in and narrow in upon a little manger there in Bethlehem and show us who is truly the most important person that was there that night. Can I say to you that this world still doesn't have much interest in the Lord Jesus Christ? He came under His own and His own received Him not. Uh, this world does not appreciate Him. Light came into the world, uh, but the darkness did not comprehend the light. But I'm here to remind you this morning uh, that the most important, the biggest, the most vital person still in this world is not the President of the United States. It's not a councilman on the UN, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still the preeminent one in this day that we live in. And there are three basic truths conveyed here. And I think if we consider the magnitude of these first opening verses, we might learn some things. In fact, let me say this, that the first thing we learn as a part of this Christmas gospel is that all happenings are in God's hands. How easy it is to read Scripture and see it merely as incidental or coincidental. But can I remind you that there are no coincidences in this world that we live in. As you look at this passage, it's easy to focus in on the manger, but let's pull out a moment. Let's just look at the big things. And can I say to you that the big things in life are in God's hands? We talked a little bit about it Friday morning when we preached on it. You know, you read this passage and you think to yourself, Oh, my, my, a world emperor, he caused the whole world to be taxed. And so Mary and Joseph, they wound up in Bethlehem. But can I turn it around for a moment and say it could be this, that Mary and Joseph had to wind up in Bethlehem. And so God moved upon the heart and mind and soul of the world emperor and caused his mind to move and to shake and caused him to give forth a decree. You say, Oh, preacher, they were in Bethlehem because the whole world was taxed, I'd say the whole world was taxed so that they'd wind up in Bethlehem. 
You know, we look at this world we live in, it's very easy to feel like we have no control. And I know we don't have any control, but it's very easy to feel like things are out of control. Man, you look at what's going on in our government, you look at what's going on in the White House, you look at what's going on in Congress, and we feel utterly helpless and utterly hopeless to do anything to stem the tide of wickedness and iniquity that is uh, creeping and crawling all over this world. But can I remind you this morning that the big things that happen in life, listen, uh, there may be a lot of wills that are at play, but no will is stronger than God's will. There may be a lot of hands that have uh, got their hands in the dough, uh, but no one's got hands like God's hands. There may be a lot of power in this world, and I know there is a prince of the power of the air, and I know there is a God of this world, but despite what the God of this world would choose to do, there's also a God of the universe. He out-trumps Him, and He's in control. And the big things in this life are in the hands of God. I'm telling you this, that the president we've got is no accident. And the next president we'll get will be no accident. God sets rulers up and God sets rulers down. And the big things that happen in this life, they don't escape the mind and knowledge and sovereignty of God. Now, I'm not saying that uh, God would wish for men to do the things that they do, but I've learned this, and I've shared this with you before. Uh, my pastor taught me this. My pastor was a, uh, he, 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 had a, he had a way about him. You had to know him, and if you know him, you know what I mean. But uh, we had a Christian school where I grew up, and uh, I went to that Christian school. And my, my pastor, you very rarely saw him over at the Christian school. He'd come in occasionally, but you very rarely saw him. He, he only, I could count on two hands the amount of times. I went there from the time I was in K-5 till I graduated. I could count on two hands the times that he preached chapel for us. We'd have two chapels every week. But by the same, I mean, he didn't have a whole lot to do, at least in the time that I was going there with that school. But by the same token, uh, that pastor could have walked into any class. It didn't matter if it was Bible class, but it could have been history class, could have been science class, could have been English class. He could have walked in, he could have said, put your books down, open your Bibles, I'm going to preach, and everybody would have done it. You say, what are you driving at, preacher? He was in control, but he wasn't controlling. He could have intervened at any moment if he had chose to do so. And that's not to say that everything that took place in that school was always the way he would have done it. But he had chosen people. He had given them, uh, he had allowed them to exercise their free will in the ministration of that school and he stayed out of their way. But at any moment he was still in control. He was still overseeing. He was still watching. And I'm here to tell you that God's the same way. I'm not saying that God causes the babies to be aborted. I'm not saying that God causes the children to be abused. Those things don't happen because of God. They happen in spite of God because God's given man a free will and a choice in things. But don't think just because you look around at a world that looks like it's spinning out of control that God's not in control. He's seated upon His throne in the heavens. He oversees everything. His eyes are upon the righteous and His eyes are upon the wicked and there's nothing that escapes His omniscient gaze. He is in control of all things, even though He may not be controlling them and making those decisions for them. I'd say the big things in life are are according to God's choices and God's hand. You look at this and it starts with Caesar Augustus. It ends with a babe in the manger. But all the while, God's hand was at work. If you were to look at human history, you would know this, that never before had there been a time when all the world could have been taxed. Until the Romans came into power, the road system wasn't there for all the world to be taxed. Uh, The legal system was not there for all the world to be taxed. The record-keeping system and the census system was not in place for all the world to be taxed. And you say, preacher, well, that's just happenstance. No, that's not just happenstance. That's God paving the way for the incarnation of His blessed Son. And I'm just going to tell you this morning that everything that's happening, it may be discouraging, but just understand it's happening right on time. We look around at a world that looks like it's out of control, but can I remind you that the world's going to be out of control when Jesus comes? 
Uh, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. This know that in the last days perilous times shall come. You say, preacher, what do we do? It's perilous. We look up for our redemption draweth nigh. It's happening right on God's time. I know your clock and God's clock don't look the same. My clock and God's clock don't look the same. But guess what? If mine's wrong, that's okay. It can be wrong because His is always right. I'd say to you that the uh, big things in life are in God's hands. I'd suggest to you that the burdensome things in life are in God's hands. Could you imagine? I, I, I've learned this. Life changes when you get older. Right? I remember when I was a kid, man, I was always in a good mood when I was a kid. And uh, you have days when you're an adult, you go two months, you don't know what a good day looks like. You know? And just life changes. It's good, it's not bad, you just, you know, life changes. It becomes more serious. And uh, I remember when I was a little kid, you remember what it was like to get a piece of mail when you were a little kid? Son, it didn't matter what it was. If it was the Sears and Roebuck, catalog. I mean, you'd run over, listen, you'd run over the ice cream man to get to that mailbox to get that catalog. Didn't matter, had your name on it. Boy, it ain't like that now. Somebody testify. You open that, my, somebody drove by and hit my mailbox. We live out in the country and uh, out in the country, it's just lawless. It's like the wild west where I live. A man can just knock over another man's mailbox with total impunity. I don't know if you're aware of that. But those of you that live in the city, you just count, count yourself, you know, special because out in the country, they just knock your mailbox down. Ain't nothing you can do about it. If you try to do something about it, they'll put you in jail. Somebody, somebody hit our mailbox. They knocked one off. This is part of the sermon, I promise. They, they knocked uh, one of them off, and I went and bought a new one. First mistake. Went and bought a nice one. Second mistake. I thought, I'll put a nice one up there, and they won't do that, Richard. They won't hit that one. Boy, I was dumb. They looked around that whole neighborhood and they said, Boy, look at that nice mailbox. That's the one I've got to hit. And so they came by and they busted. I said, Fine, I'll just be white trash. Leave it up. I don't care. And the, the lid won't stay up on it now. You know, it just it just falls open. And uh, now every time I drive by, I look in that mailbox with a sense of dread because the door's always open to see whether or not I got a piece of mail. Welcome to adulthood. You're thinking it's going to be a bill. You know, you just dread. Could you imagine the dread that covered like a cloud over Mary and Joseph when the decree finally reached Nazareth that everybody was to make the journey back to the place of their birth? It couldn't have come. Somebody say amen to this. It couldn't have come at a worse time in their life. I mean, it, she was so close to giving birth that she did give birth in Bethlehem. It couldn't have come. An 80-mile journey. Now, you and me, 80 miles, we wouldn't think much about it. But at that time, on the back of a donkey and on foot, traveling through the Judean mountains, 80 miles that they had to go. What a burden that must have been. What a heavy weight upon them that must have been. But you know, that was according to the hand of God. God had put them in a situation, in a place, and they would have never planned that, but God planned it. Some of you carry burdens that you didn't plan on. Listen, somebody help me. Some of y'all carry burdens you never planned on. You never planned on having a child wayward. You, listen, you never, you never planned on having a spouse walk out. You never planned on having the, the doctor come and tell you that you're, that you're sick. You never planned on having you, uh, losing your job and having to suffer financially. You didn't plan that. But God did. Oh, help me now. God did. God, that doesn't surprise God. 
You may have not planned for that. And by the way, I'm not saying that's what God wishes or wants for your life, but I'm saying this, all things work together for good. You didn't plan that. They didn't plan that journey, but guess what? That didn't mean it was beyond the scope of the hand of God. You'll find this to be true, that God can take the bitter things in life and make them things of blessings when they are placed in His hand. There are things that I look back and I'm glad God guarded me from. There's a way that seemed right unto me, but I can see now that that way was the way of death. And God worked in a mysterious and miraculous way, and He may have put some heavy things on me. He may have placed some burdensome things on me, some things I would have never asked God for, some things I would have never put upon my own shoulders. But God, in His infinite love and wisdom and mercy, chose that I might carry that weight, that I might carry that burden, that He might get glory out of my life. I'm saying you may not plan for things to go this way, That doesn't mean that God can't get glory out of it. I'd say the burdensome things in life, you know, I'd say the baffling things in life are in God's hands. You ever just had a perfect storm of bad luck? I mean, I know there's not luck. I know. Don't get all spiritual with it. But but you know what I mean? mean, Just everything at once. Don't you know that whole trip to Nazareth? They're sitting there thinking, boy, I hope Mary don't have this baby while we're there. Don't you know that whole... I don't think... Listen, if the scribes had to go looking for the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, Judah, I'm betting that Mary probably didn't expect for him to be born in Bethlehem, Judah. Right? The scribes had to go looking for it. Go through. Look through the prophecies. I don't find anywhere in the interaction with the angels and Mary where God told Mary this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. She didn't expect it to happen that way. And don't you know the whole way that her and Joseph would look at each other and say, Boy, I hope this baby is not born while we're on this trip. But sure as anything, according to human wisdom, things went as wrong as they could go at the worst possible time. Don't you know they scratched their heads and wondered what God was doing? Now, I don't know about you. You may be more spiritual than me, but there's been times I've wondered if God knew what He's doing. I know that He knows what He's doing, but my flesh says, surely God doesn't know what He's doing. And there's probably times that things we can't figure out and things we can't understand. But you know what? It's an endeavor of faith. If you got in this thing to walk by sight, you got in the wrong business. Let me say that again. Some of y'all got that and some of y'all... If you got in it to walk by sight, you got in the wrong business because we walk by faith and not by sight. Why should, it, why should it confuse us that it confuses us? Why should it baffle us that it baffles us? Why should it discourage us that it confounds us? This is a life of faith that God has called us to walk. You're not always going to understand what God's doing. You wouldn't be much of a God if you did. But you have to trust that the baffling things in life are in God's hands. I'd say to you, first off, that all happenings are in God's hands. But I would say that we learn from this passage that all humanity is the object of God's love. When you consider the most strange things about the Christmas story, there are a lot of strange elements in the Christmas story. But I think probably the most peculiar is the audience to whom the angels go. Now, I know what you and I think of shepherds. We've been raised here in, in you know, Podunk, East Tennessee, and we, we think of a shepherd, we think like of a precious moments figurine. Am I right? That's what we think of as a shepherd. Can I say to you that shepherds, shepherds were not, they, they didn't look like your little kids dressed up in a bathrobe in a Christmas play. That's not what a shepherd looked like in that day. Shepherds were a scorned and surly crowd. 
And I think the very fact that this message goes to shepherds is a great word of encouragement to you and I. Did you know that shepherds were the object of the reproach of society at that time? The only people... Uh, listen, you know what society thought of a, of a shepherd? He was as bad as a prostitute and just a notch above a leper. That was the way they felt about shepherds. They were filthy, dirty people. They lived out in the open, out in the wilderness. Uh, they were the kind of people, if you're just walking down the street, there's the kind of people you cross the street to quit from walking close from. I mean, they were the kind of people that you avoided at all costs. And let me tell you something about the good God of heaven. When He chose to make known to humanity the birth of His blessed Son, He did not go to the temple scribes. He did not go to the high priest. He did not go to the meeting of the council of the Sanhedrin with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He came to the lowest of the low and said, there's a Savior here for you. Man, that's, that's God's crowd. Did you know that? <laughs> That's God's crowd. I'm glad that God saves the up and in, but I'm equally glad that God does save the down and out. And He goes to a group of people that are the very scum of society. The very scum of society. I would say that we learn this from the selection of the shepherds, but I would say that we learn this from the sinfulness of the shepherds too. You might say, well, preacher, they were a rough crowd, but what's wrong with being a rough crowd? Now, if you're like me, I mean, you know, I was raised in a good home and we never, we never did without, but have you ever researched your family tree? Anybody done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. Have you ever stopped because of what you found? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. Okay, there's my people. I got one side. Dad's side of the family, I'm going to tell on them. Dad's side of the family ain't that bad. But now mom's side, it gets rough back in there, you know. But that, you know, that's the kind of people, I mean, I, I was, you go back a little ways and there's moonshiners and thieves and, you know, rough folks. I mean, you, you know, I, I, my family's raised in the mountains. That's just how mountain folks are, you know. And, and uh, the, you know, there, there's a lot of that in my family tree. But, you know, I'm thankful I'm not defined by that in this day that I live in. But I would suggest this, that there's nothing wrong with being a working class person, right? There's nothing wrong with being the kind of person that gets your hands dirty when you work. And you might say, well, preacher, that's good that God goes to those that, that might be poor. That's good. But my problem, preacher, is not that I'm poor. My problem is not that society dislikes me. My problem is that I'm sinful. Is there a Savior for me? One of the consequences of the shepherd's work was it rendered them constantly ceremonially unclean. They were consistently handling dead carcasses of the sheep. They were consistently having uh, to handle manure and dung and things like that. And because of that, did you know that a shepherd at this time in Israel was never ceremonially clean? In other words, when you saw a shepherd, you were looking at somebody that never went in the temple. You were looking at somebody that never uh, went and offered sacrifices. When you were looking at a shepherd, don't it give a little perspective when Christ says, I am the good shepherd? But you're looking at somebody, can I just put it this way? This is a crowd that is not religious. They're not religious. Let me say this, that I think by the sinfulness of the shepherd, there's a great note of encouragement here. Because it tells me that uh, regardless of whether you're rich or whether you're poor, regardless of whether you're lauded uh, by society or loathed by society, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. You know, Paul, he was a pretty respectable guy. We was talking about that in Sunday school. He profited above other Jews in, uh, or other people in the Jews' religion, above many his equals. He was a wealthy man. He was a religious man. 
man, but God still came to him and dealt with him concerning his salvation. You know why? Because he was a sinner. He was a sinner. I'd say the sinfulness of the shepherd, but I'd say the statement to the shepherd is a good word of encouragement. Uh, you know, there's a crowd out here that they believe that God, you know, he just he picks uh, people for salvation like somebody would pick a kickball team or a baseball team. And I'm not here to just fuss about them today, but let me say this, that I believe in a whosoever will gospel. I, I've always believed in that. But you know what? I don't believe in it because I've always believed in it. I believe in it because I found it to be true according to the Word of God. And I could give you a 100,000 text verses, it seems. But can I give you one that might be a little familiar unto you? Uh, the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to how many people? All people. Man, this is good news for everybody. This isn't just good news for the quote-unquote elect. This isn't just... And by the way, you know I found this? I've never met a Calvinist who had a child that wasn't elect. You ever notice that? I don't know about your kids, but God chose their kids. You'd think you'd meet at least one person that's Calvinist that believes that one of their kids is going to die and go to hell and isn't elect and chosen, but it never works out that way. You know why? Because there's no substance to that heresy. There's no truth to that heresy. It doesn't ring true either in Scripture or in experience. You know what rings true in Scripture? That Christ came to be a ransom for all men, and He died for all men. He tasted death for every man. When the angel came, He didn't say, I'm just coming to the rich. When He came, He didn't say, I'm just coming to the poor. When He came, He didn't say, I'm just coming to the Jews. When he came, he didn't say, I'm just coming to the Gentiles. When he came, he said, I've got good news. I've got a gospel for you. And this gospel is not just for a select group, but this gospel is for any that'll hear, any that'll come unto me. I will in no wise cast out. This is a gospel that's good for everybody if they'll come and hear it. Now, I know not everybody's going to be saved, but I know everybody could be saved if they'd come unto him. I know not everybody's going to be saved, but I know anybody can be saved. I would say that we learn from this passage that all humanity is the object of God's love. But then finally, in closing, I'd say from this passage that we understand this truth. Number one, all happenings are in God's hands. And that's the big things. That's the burdensome things. That's the baffling things. We learn that all humanity is the object of God's love. And we learn that from the status and the sinfulness and the statement to the shepherds. But I'd say that we learn from this passage that all hope is in only one man. Notice the very last verse, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I want you to notice three things about this verse and we'll close. Notice first off, the personal need of this man. It doesn't say for unto somebody is born. Now he's already said that this is good news for all people. But now he points a divine finger at these shepherds and says unto you is born this day in the city of David. I'd been raised my whole life. I was raised in a Bible-believing church, and I had been told that God would save all men. But December 1st, 1997, I learned that God wouldn't just save all men. He'd save me. You know, there's a difference in that comprehension and understanding. It's one thing to say God will save all men. It's another thing to finally realize that the God of heaven loves you, and He'll save you if you'll come unto Him. This implies a personal need of these shepherds. They had a need of salvation, them personally. I've said this time and again, but I'll say it this morning, that God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. Either you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ or you do not. 
There is no middle ground. There is no purgatory, as some would have us to believe. There is no middle road of religion and philosophy. There is no sitting on the fence of good works. You're either saved or unsaved this morning. One of the two. But God came because He loves you. If you'd been the only one, now you weren't the only one, but if you had been the only one, He would have died upon a rugged cross in your place. He tasted death for every man. And you have a personal need of this salvation, just as I had a personal need of it. And when I got saved was when I acknowledged that not just everybody needed it, I needed it. I personally needed to be saved. I would denote to you not only the person or the uh, personal need here, the need of this man, uh, but I would denote to you in this passage that we see the purposed nature of this man. It says, "For unto you." is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. A Savior. Now, I'm going to tell you this morning that there is a sharp contrast and there is a divide in modern Christendom concerning this matter. And it's not measured by what men will say. It's measured by what men won't say. I'm here to tell you there absolutely are churches who don't believe that the new birth is necessary. I believe this morning that the new birth is necessary. I believe that the primary purpose and object in view of the ministry and incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just to fix a man's finances. It's not just to fix up a broken marriage. It's not just to build someone's ego or their self-esteem. It's not just to help them uh, to win friends and influence people. I'd say to you this day uh, that Christ came to this world and He didn't come as a banker to fix your finances or as a counselor. He came as a Savior because we need to be saved. He came as a Savior. That's what men need. And the problem this morning, men want a Savior without acknowledging they're a sinner. But the truth is, if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. I'm glad that He came as a Savior because what I needed was a Savior. As a 10-year-old boy, I didn't have no marriage that needed to be fixed. I didn't have enough sense to uh, have any kind of money that needed to be fixed. I didn't have enough sense to... You know my boy. You know how my child... I didn't have a problem with self-esteem growing up. Somebody say amen to that. But I did know, I did acknowledge that I was a lost sinner on my way to hell and I needed to be saved. That's why Christ came into the world. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Any gospel that deviates from the salvation of the sinner being the chief and primary goal, object, and ends of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a false gospel. And we ought to pronounce anathema over it. It's not just to try to build people's ego. It's not just to try to give a motivational speaking. The purpose of the gospel is to save sinners because men are sinners and they need a Savior. We see the purpose nature. But then I'd like you to notice the personal name of this man, which is what? Christ the Lord. Not Muhammad. Not Joseph Smith. Not Mary Baker Eddy. Not, not, not Big Papa, Pope Francis, Frankie, whatever. <laughs> and not yours and my favorite independent fundamental Baptist preacher either. Nope, Christ the Lord. He's the only hope. He's the only one. It baffles me that this truth... It must be willingly, it must be willfully and consciously denied for it to persist, this heresy in people's lives, because the Bible is so clear on this matter. I mean, it's not just a, a difference of interpretation. You must reject the truth and inspiration of the Word of God to believe that there are multiple ways to heaven. 
Because there is no place for any interpretation of I mean, I don't care how you cut it. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how it makes you feel. It doesn't matter if it upsets you. That is absolute truth this morning. He is the only way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is the only means and way of salvation this morning. And so should it seem surprising to us that the angel arrived and said, I've come with a gospel to present to you. And this gospel is that all of these things, listen, everything's happened in your life. You're here by divine appointment this morning. You say, well, preacher, I don't know about that. I came for this reason. I came for that reason. You could have been a lot of places this morning. But you were here this morning. The big things in your life brought you to this place. The burdensome things in your life brought you to this place. The baffling things in your life brought you to this place. But understand, you were brought to this place. And you didn't come here by accident. And the reason you come here is because there's a God in heaven that has you as the object of His love. He loves you. He cares for you. In fact, He loves you so much that He sent His Son to die on the rugged cross of Calvary that you might be redeemed. But understand that He and He alone is your only hope. If you turn Him away, you've turned away the only hope that you have. Listen, you can live the rest of your life. You can spend every penny that you ever make. You can exhaust yourself. You can spend all and be spent trying to do good for mankind. But if you never come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's all to no avail. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. If you've not come by Him, you've not come at all. But this morning He loves you and He'll save you. He loves you and He'll save you. So don't believe you've come here by accident. See that you've come here by divine appointment. God loves you and He wants to save you today if you'll come unto Him with our heads.